Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Paul Monies has been following Oklahoma's new law that bans the state from doing business with companies perceived to be hostile to the oil and gas industry. Paul, you wrote recently about the spread of this kind of law across the country. Can you give us some background? Yeah, so this is kind of a trend among some of the states, and especially kind of uh, the red states uh, in the south and, and western parts of this, the country. Um, they've kind of gotten these model laws passed in several states that um, forbid pension systems or bond offerings by state entities um, that are with banks or financial firms that are perceived to uh, have an anti-oil and gas uh, kind of bent to them. And they kind of determine that by figuring out if they're uh, memberships of, of kind of uh, carbon zero associations on the banking side or just have, have uh, shareholder proposals before their public companies to kind of uh, cut down on some carbon industries that they support uh, through their financial investments. Now, the state treasurer put 13 banks and financial firms on the first version of the uh, blacklist, if you will. Will that be updated or changed at some point? Yes. Uh, our state treasurer, Todd Russ, who took office uh, back in January uh, and actually voted for this law when he was a state representative as well last year, um, he put 13 banks and financial firms on his first version of the list, but he said that he continues to review that list every 90 days takes feedback from the companies that have been named to the list, and will no, about, no doubt be updating that uh, a little bit later this summer. So how have uh, state pension systems, for example, responded to that law? Yeah, so Oklahoma's got about half a dozen state pension systems, anything from teachers and state employees to judges um, and police officers and firefighters. And um, none of those have as much exposure as the uh, the main one for state employees called OPERS. Um, and so they have um, about 60% of their investments uh, with BlackRock, which is one of the firms named to the list by Todd Russ's office. And so they're now going on that, that kind of uh, process to kind of see if they need to divest from that investments uh, that are run by BlackRock for them on their behalf of pensioners in that system, uh, or if they can uh, trigger an exemption in law that allows them to do that under their fiduciary duty, which basically means that their uh, trustees on that pension board think that it's, it will be cost more to get out of that investment and divest than it would be worth it to, uh, to fully divest uh, that, that investment. Now, what about uh, agencies other than the pension systems? Have those been affected? Yes. And so it's been a little bit unsure uh, when this law went into effect if other uh, trusts would be affected. Uh, TSET, which is a tobacco settlement uh, endowment trust, uh, manages a lot of money and, of course, has its own carve-outs for uh, non-tobacco investments. In fact, they don't allow any tobacco investments, which makes sense to them. Uh, they are not covered by this law. And also the uh, state uh, commissions and land office, which runs about uh, uh, $7 billion, a several billion dollar fund on behalf of education for both uh, uh, K-12 and higher education. Um, they're not subject to this law, although the commissioners, which includes Governor uh, Kevin Stitt, voted at their last meeting in June to uh, cut two of the banks on the, the treasurer's list from their uh, list of investment managers, including that was BlackRock um, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Even though that uh, that trust is not subject to the law, that was just something done basically on a whim by the governor and with support of the commissioners at the last meeting. 
Oh, you wrote about the coordination of this policy being done by a Kansas nonprofit organization. What are their connections to these conservative interest groups? Yeah, so through some of our reporting, we've pulled some public records, including emails uh, with this, this small group uh, in Kansas called the State Financial Officers um, Foundation. And they basically come up in the last dozen or so years. Uh, they, they got their start kind of basically um, trying to encourage more women in banking and investment, but have kind of changed that and gotten some support from several conservative organizations like the Heritage Foundation um, to kind of change their mission a little bit to kind of go after these so-called woke investments that they call them uh, that states have with various pension funds uh, managers. And so they are basically uh, carrying out a lot of these policies behind the scenes in many of the states that have passed these laws, including Oklahoma. And in fact, our state treasurer has written some op-eds, signed on to letters with other state treasurers. Our state auditor, Cindy Bird, is also part of this organization as well and has signed on to some of these letters. And so they're kind of coordinating, offering talking points behind the scenes uh, to kind of push this this strategy as well, which is now also going to be kind of part of the Republican presidential primary, both of uh, several of the, the candidates running right now, including uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, have talked about these so-called woke investments by state uh, pension funds and have pulled their states back from those companies as well. All right. Now, your reporting still left some unanswered questions, didn't it? It did. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of uncertainty if this law actually applies to anything below a state agency or trust. Uh, in fact, if when you go down to the city level, uh, does it apply to city pension systems like the ones run by Oklahoma City and Tulsa, the two largest cities in the state? There's also kind of a separate pension system for smaller municipalities around the state. Does this law apply to them? We're not exactly sure yet. Uh, and also there's there's also some um, some differing interpretations of whether or not it goes to county level pension systems. Uh, Oklahoma County and Tulsa County both have their own pension systems with several hundred million dollars in assets. Uh, does this law apply to them? We're unsure of that. We're asking these questions, but we're still kind of uh, unsettled on that issue. So what developments do you expect to see over the next couple of weeks? Well, of course, we're going to probably see an updated list from State Treasurer Todd Russ at some point in the next few weeks. Uh, and also uh, the state uh, employees pension system, OPERS, uh, meets again uh, later this month and um, had a, an existing resolution to trigger its kind of fiduciary duty exemption on this particular law. Uh, it did not get voted by the full trustee board last time. It may come up again. They're going to have to make some decisions because they're going to have, I think their deadline is August for that one to make that decision on divestments for their investments from BlackRock. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read all of uh, Paul's coverage of uh, how this new law may affect Oklahoma investments on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch, and she's here to talk about some recent criticism the State Department of Education under Superintendent Ryan Walters uh, has been getting for failing to provide public records. Jennifer, how did this controversy come about? I really think this has been an issue kind of bubbling up for a while now. Um, I've talked to a number of Um, other media, different outlets. Um, Many of them have complained of struggles getting information out of the department since Walters took over in January. Um, But the most recent um, kind of public criticism came after Walters attended a public forum last week in Norman. um, And uh, Channel 4 reporter Kaylee Olivas was there and asked a question at the forum about a records request that she says 
has been pending for 100 days. Um, and she tweeted about that. And that kind of um, stirred up some some folks. And, and some of us in the media obviously really relate to her struggle there. And just to clarify, when you say Channel 4, we're talking about KFOR in Oklahoma City. Right. Now, uh, you're also requesting some public records from the Department of Education. What kind of experience have you had? So I have requested about a dozen different things um, since January when Walters took over. Um, They have fulfilled about half of those. So it's not that um, nothing's being provided. There are certainly records being provided. Um, But there are also some that are being delayed um, maybe too long. Um, I do have one in, in, in the department since February that's still pending. They say they're working on finding a way to provide that to me. Um, so trying to, um, you know, take them at a good faith effort. Um, you know, I know there's been some turnover. There's obviously been a transition in leadership. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that they're, they're working on those. Now, you recently obtained a log of all the records requests that have been filed since Walters took office. What did you learn from that? Right. This was something that I requested because we were kind of wondering if other reporters were having the same struggle that we were, and we wanted to kind of put a number on that, right? Um, And so requested the log. Um, There was a a little under 250 requests since um, Walters took office in January. Um, and and these run the gamut. I mean, there are requests from media, obviously, um, you know, looking for financial information like contracts and um, spending records and employment records like, you know, new staff turnover, things like that. Um, but there's commercial requests, you know, looking at um, contract information for like textbooks or food service um, there's just, you know, regular people looking for their high school transcripts. Um, and, and then, you know, there's even some from other state agencies, um, like, you know, Department of Ag looking for, uh, child nutrition information or statewide virtual charter school board looking for information on the schools that they sponsor. Well, uh, do you know how many, uh, of those requests are still pending? No. And that's a question I'm trying to answer. Um, I'm trying to, clarify the log, like I said, has a little under 250. Unfortunately, it does not say how many were filled. And I know I still have several pending. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical of the accuracy of this log just because um, Kaylee with Channel 4 tweeted that, um, and and I talked to her uh, recently also, that um, the department spokesperson told her that 350 had been filled. So it doesn't match with what they've provided me. That statement and the log were about a week apart. Um, So I I just, I don't know how that many could have come in in that week. So I'm wondering where the discrepancy is. All right. Now, uh, Walters made a claim recently that his administration has fulfilled more open records requests in his six months than Joy Hoffmeister did in her entire tenure. How accurate a statement is that? Well, I, I mean, it's a, it's not really a good comparison. I think, you know, six months to eight years. Um, I, I mean, I know I personally have been filing records requests under Hoffmeister, obviously, and now under Walters. Um, and, 
I think the bigger difference is not necessarily how, I mean, I think there are some under Walters that are taking too long. And and I, I do think there've been a lot of employee turnover that may be, you know, that may explain some of that. I'm not sure. Uh, but the bigger difference is under Hoffmeister, when reporters would have questions about a certain topic, um, she would often, you know, allow you to interview, say, the department head so that you could get some of your questions answered. You would be more knowledgeable when writing the story or say when, you know, A through F report cards were to come out, she would hold a press conference and gather the folks in the department that worked on those report cards and all the media that wanted to attend so that they could ask questions in that situation. That's what's not happening now. And so I think there probably are more requests going in under Walters just because, you know, A through F report cards were released uh, recently. Uh, there was no press conference. Uh, they there was not even a press release. They were just put up on the website. I've asked multiple times to talk to department heads. I've called the department heads directly. They refer me to the press secretary. The press secretary is not answering the questions. So I, I think that's the bigger difference. I think people are filing more records requests because they're, they feel like that's the only way to get information out of this administration. Now, if uh, the administration is saying they've uh, had 350 requests in the six months that Walters has been in office, um, it, it seems just sort of on on routine requests, things like transcripts and, and whatnot, that over the course of eight years that the Joy Hoffmeister held the position, you would have seen more than 350 requests. I would think so. I mean, doesn't so. just sort of common sense suggest that over over that span, you would have seen a lot more than 350? I would think so. I would think so. But I have not taken the step to request all of those, you know, for those eight years just to compare that number. Now, uh, Kaylee says she's been waiting 100 days to get her request filled. Uh, and, you know, there's no maximum time frame, no deadline in the law. It only says it has to be prompt and reasonable. Uh, there is one opinion Drew Edmondson wrote when he was the attorney general that essentially says prompt and reasonable means the time it takes you to walk over to the file cabinet and, and pull it out of the uh, out of the drawer. But other than that, uh, there's nothing specific about how quickly they must respond. Uh, how long have you been waiting for some of your requests to get filled? I do have at least one from February. One thing I started doing um, under Walters was requesting more financial information, things like contracts, purchase orders, uh, receipts for spending, um, mainly because, you know, we spent a lot of time covering the um, gear program that he managed. There were a lot of issues with spending and contracts and, you know, no bid contracts and no RFPs and things like that. So I wanted to really scrutinize that now that he is in charge of a much larger amount of public funding under the State Department of Education. Um, so that's been a request that I've been putting in monthly. They supplied Januarys, which was a partial year, and have not been able to provide any months since. So that's one that I'm working on. Hope, hopefully, they are going to start providing that. Um, I'm, I'm told that is going to be set up in a way that I can look at those. Um, but it, it, there's not a whole lot of rhyme or reason to like what's being fulfilled quickly and what's not. Um, some, you know, I would ask for it would be provided next day. 
some very, very should be simple, easy to get like resumes. I've asked for a couple of employees' resumes that have since been hired. That's dragging on. So there's not a lot of, um, uh, you know, sense to what is taking a long time and what's not. Well, I know I I made a simple request on May 25th for a handful of emails that has not had a response yet. So that's been six or seven weeks for something you would think would be a couple of mouse clicks and uh, something that could be filled in in a few minutes. Um, the the law does say, you know, that they um, agencies are not allowed to have a um, a policy in which they fulfill requests in the order they come in, right? If they get uh, one request that's going to take an inordinate amount of time, they can't put all the simple requests behind that because historically that's been used as a delay tactic. So um, that does uh, kind of go to your point about the you know, uh, no, no clear path to what gets filled quickly and what doesn't, but, um, but they shouldn't be sitting behind somebody else's big project, right? Right. But I do think there's a little bit of a difference too in like existing records and then requests that would maybe kind of create a record. And I noticed in Kaylee's request um, through, from Channel 4, you know, what she's asking for is like a list of schools where inappropriate library materials were found and, um, you know, the department's response to that. And that is probably not as direct as a resume submitted by an employee. Um, so that doesn't excuse it by any means. Still, we should be able to get this information. It requires with- a little bit of data compilation, not just forwarding uh, an email or a resume. Correct. Yeah. Um, although in this case, you know, in Kaylee's request, the superintendent, you know, has said repeatedly, uh, I have found this kind of material in the schools. Um, so you would think they would know which schools he found those materials at. It wouldn't be that hard to compile. You would think. And that's definitely why there's a lot of public interest in it. The superintendent himself is drawing the public's attention to this. He should be able to provide records that back that up. So when a, uh, there are a couple things in the open records law in Oklahoma that uh, provide remedies and guidelines around remedies for when um, a public entity is not responding appropriately to open records requests. Um, the first stage in that is that the, um, the agency has to deny your request and tell you uh, what part of the Open Records Act they're relying on uh, to deny your request. So um, in, in your case and in Kaylee's case, uh, have any of your requests been denied or are they just sitting there? I personally have not had the department deny any under Walters um, like I said, most of my issue has been um, delays, unexplained delays, unanswered um, questions about whether they're coming, that kind of thing. Um, Kaylee did mention that uh, something kind of interesting that um, one of the responses to hers from the department's spokesperson um, was, oh, well, that's already out in the media. Like, you should already be able to find that. Like, as if that's some kind of a response to it. Um, and she's like, no, that's not a sufficient response. Like, you have to yeah. either provide it to me. Like, I can't quote some other news station. 
I've requested it. You have to either provide it or deny it. Um, so I'm not sure if there have been any formal denials. All right. Now, uh, there are two remedies in the Oklahoma, o- Oklahoma Open Records Act. One says uh, that uh, violations of the Open Records Act is a misdemeanor punishable by a $500 fine, up to a $500 fine. Uh, and that requires getting a district attorney to file criminal charges uh, against uh, another public official in his county, which we don't see happen very often. The other remedy is that you can file a lawsuit against the agency and uh, try to get a judge to order them uh, to produce the records uh, if uh, if the court finds that they are in violation. So one of the things we see a lot on social media, especially when we write about this kind of thing, is the public says, well, if they're not complying, if they're not fulfilling your requests, why don't you sue them? What's the answer? I mean, we have sued before. Um, I think we as an organization are willing to sue over records violations. We've shown that. We've been successful um, in some of these pursuits. Um, but it's not an easy thing. I mean, it's not a quick decision. You know, um, it it costs time and money. Um, And so, you know, it's not something we're going to jump to. I mean, I know my personal approach with this new administration has been to really give them the benefit of the doubt. I know it's new. I know a lot of these folks are new, and I'm hopeful that they're really going to try. But if at some point we get to where we feel like they are violating the law blatantly, they are not trying to... Um, you know, provide these documents to the public um, and and us as a repre- you know representative of the public, then I think we might um, uh, go that route. Um, it, you know, you mentioned being a representative of, of the public, and I wrote in today's first watch newsletter a lot about the idea of public records being owned by the public. Uh, It's worth pointing out, journalists have no special privileges here. Anything that we can request, uh, any anybody, uh, any member of the public can go request just like we can. We just sort of do it on their behalf because it's uh, part of our job. But uh, anybody at all could make the same request. Those are uh, records owned by uh, owned by the public and paid for by the taxpayers. Um, so nonetheless, chasing down those records uh, can certainly be frustrating and time consuming. Why bother? You know, I mean, I think especially here at Oklahoma Watch, it's part of our DNA. Like it's really part of what we do. Um, and we see it as kind of our responsibility and our obligation to um, keep public officials in check. And this is part of the way that we do that. It's not the only way. Um, I, you know, I certainly have tried in the last couple of years to um, be better about tracking our requests to make sure that we get them um, to kind of help um, encourage our staff to f- to file more records requests, to follow up, um, to hold people um, accountable when they're not providing them or we're being denied in ways that, um, you know, do not mesh with the law. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just I feel like it's part of our responsibility to the public to get these records. And sometimes we write about them. Sometimes we don't. Um, I sometimes think that's kind of beside the point. Um, you know, the point is we are being watchdogs and um, this is a, one of the main ways we do that. Uh, 
Before Superintendent Walters was elected to his current position, he ran a an education related uh, nonprofit, and nonprofit organizations uh, are subject to uh, some some open records as well as part of the IRS code. Uh, if I remember right, you had made some requests to his nonprofit organization for records. Were those filled in a timely fashion? No, they were not. That was um, one of the more challenging uh, requests and for something very simple that the federal, you know, IRS law says has to be provided um, in in person. If you walk in and you say, I want to see your latest tax filing to a nonprofit, they have to allow you to look at it. Um, and that we went round and round trying to get those. Um, did finally... Uh, get the 990s for that um, for that nonprofit, but yeah, but it was a challenge. About how long did that take? Do you recall? I think it took over a month and multiple calls, multiple stops in person to get somebody there to provide it. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read uh, all of Jennifer's coverage on education on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, click on the newsletters tab. Be sure to subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. In this segment of Long Story Short, uh, we are joined by reporter Keaton Ross, who has been examining jail inspection reports from 2022. He's here to break down the state of Oklahoma's jails and why some issues persist. Keaton, who's responsible for inspecting Oklahoma's jails? The Oklahoma State Department of Health has a jail inspection division um, that that will send inspectors out to facilities across the state uh, unannounced. Um, so they go out, uh, check for several issues, and then write up a report. How well exhaustive is that process? It's pretty in-depth. Um, it covers... Uh, Hygiene issues, standard of living issues, like ensuring that um, there's enough light in every cell, there's enough space, um, there's not mold or um, anything building up inside the facility. Um, also covers things like site checks. So if you have someone who's um, facing a mental health crisis or uh, a substance, substance abuse issue, that sort of thing, uh, the state requires uh, site checks uh, in certain increments. Um, so checking those logs to make sure that that sort of thing is being done um, is all covered in the inspection. Oh, how many Oklahoma jails failed their initial inspection last year? About 60% of jails, uh, this is county, city, and also some uh, small lockups inside of police departments, uh, about 60% of those failed their initial inspection in 2022. And how does that compare to previous years? So when I reported uh, last year on 2020 inspection results, um, at that time, it was around 40% of these jails failed their initial inspection. Uh, so a pretty notable uh, uptick there compared to 2020. And what issues were facilities uh, cited for most often in 2022? One of the most common citations was uh, fire detection issues like Maybe a, a fire alarm is faulty or not uh, working properly, that sort of thing. Um, about half of facilities were cited for that. Um, but but there are also several dozen facilities that were uh, out of compliance on some of those issues I talked about or, earlier, such as uh, sanitation, um, 
some security issues um, and and some safety issues that could jeopardize um, people who are who are incarcerated in these facilities. Right. And then what happens if a jail is cited for some violation? So they're put on a corrective action plan and essentially have to try and show evidence uh, to the state health department that they're working to try and fix the issue. Um, so that's kind of the time frame for it. Uh, they'll go out, issue the report after the report's issued. Um, they're kind of put on that 60 day clock to, to show evidence that they're, they're trying to address whatever um, issues were, came up. And then uh, what happens at the end of the 60 days? So at that point, if, if they haven't produced evidence that they're uh, fixed, trying to fix those issues, um, working at it, of course, not every, it, what, what you see a lot of times is that uh, a lot of these jails funded um, through county revenue um, have a difficult time addressing these things, just lack of funding. Um, so it's kind of uh, a tricky play on like when, uh, to file those those formal complaints and whatnot, um, but but is that that what happens at the end of sixty days? There's a formal complaint filed the theoretically. The, if yes, you, there's the option for the state health department to file the the formal complaint at that point, but oftentimes that doesn't happen. And well, how many of those formal complaints did the state health department file last year? Uh, looking looking over the past couple of years, there's just been one from the Oklahoma County Jail. Uh, so, uh, just to make sure I have that right, uh, 60% of the jails uh, had violations on their complaints, and yet over the last couple of years, only one of those resulted in a formal complaint? That's right. Okay. After uh, several years of delays, there's some state money finally set to be distributed to local justice systems to help pay for uh, treatment programs. Could you elaborate on the status of that? Yeah, so that's that was part of uh, State Question 781, uh, the related question, State Question 780, uh, reclassified several felonies, uh, drug and property crimes to misdemeanors. Uh, 781 was written in a way to uh, help out those local systems with, you know, anticipated higher number of, of misdemeanor filings, uh, kind of deal with that new population and help provide programming to them. Um, the legislature has struggled for several years to settle on a formula to distribute money to the fund, like is outlined in the question. Um, but but this year, the the legislature finally uh, settled on who's, who's going to calculate that. Um, and they set aside money um, for that, uh, for that fund. Um, so that anticipated uh, will help ideally maybe divert some people who may have been in the jail and, and you see some issues of overcrowding, if you're able to get some of those programs implemented, um, you might, that might be able to help ultimately with overcrowding and some other jail condition issues. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Uh, Keaton covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch and also does some criminal justice reporting. You can subscribe to his weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch, by visiting our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch 
which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.